Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Okay, let's do some inventorying here. We're living in a massive pandemic that has killed nearly a million people and there's no end in sight. There is an intractable division in our country politically that seems to bleed itself into every inch of our lives. We have perhaps the most contentious, bitter presidential election that any of us have ever endured coming up, and no matter who wins and who loses, it seems like nobody's going to be happy and nothing will change. Generations-old racial injustice and oppression is being named in some ways and denied at others. There's a level of rioting and looting in the streets. There are clashes that have turned violent between differing ideological groups. The western half of the United States is tragically on fire. Not to mention that the updates that we get on wildlife populations, the health of glaciers, or global temperatures is never ever positive. And some have predicted that we've already crossed the point of no return in regards to climate change. So, to recap, we have plagues, we have political divisions along with egomaniacal figures claiming ultimate authority, and we have natural disasters. Listen, I am no hellfire end times preacher, but if I were, I think I would be having a field day. It seems at least reasonable to ask the question, to channel Michael Stipe of the great REM, is this the end of the world as we know it? And so, with those haunting and gallows humor kinds of questions ringing in our ears now, Now we're trying to send our kids back to school safely or to work full-time and somehow be a homeschool teacher to, to figure out what it means to be the church in these days, to hold on to some shred of our mental health, to do class from home without the interactions from professors and teachers and peers, to, to not go days on end without, without having a face-to-face, uh, though masked, interaction with another human being. I came upon this article written by Anne Helen Peterson, where she wrote poignantly and painfully. She writes, The past year has been an exercise in mass compartmentalization. How can you take what's happening around you, flatten it, then divide it into something small enough that you can endure it? If you can just get through the summer, you'll be okay. If you can just get through the week, you'll be okay. If you can just get through the afternoon, the hour... We have become, in her words, habituated to horror, on a subtle and steady slide into a dystopia. She describes how Alfonso Cuaron, visionary director of the dystopian film Children of Men, deliberately set his film in a world that looks like it was just 10 years beyond our own world. Just, just familiar enough, but with slight distortions that remind us all too powerfully that it can happen here. And it's with those questions and ominous warnings that we arrive and we begin our study of the book of Revelation, 
Now, much has been made, and we could spend a lot of time caricaturing the ways that Revelation has been manipulated, has been misused. Much has been made of Revelation. Every generation since the resurrection of Jesus has at least mildly suspected that they were living in the quote-unquote end times. There have been antichrists pointed to in every age. People have done incredible imaginative gymnastics trying to demonstrate how what St. John describes in his revelation, what he's describing as he's seeing, is really describing something from their own day and time. G.K. Chesterton, always humorous and always witty, says of Revelation, Though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. And usually, because of the absurdity that Revelation has often been subjected to, because of the distortions inflicted upon it, because of the the shame of being associated with the the end-of-the-world crackpots who claim that Jesus showed them the exact day that the world was going to end, an hour, coincidentally, that Jesus says in the Bible that no one knows but the Father, and, spoiler alert, every single one of them has been wrong, and even if you got it right, it's not as if you'd be up in heaven talking to Peter or Moses saying, um, hey guys, Did you hear? I did it. I predicted the end of the world. Totally nailed it. For this and many other reasons, Christians either do far too much with Revelation, building whole theologies and worlds around it, looking at world events and trying to map out how the things that St. John is describing is really describing something from our modern day. They do too much with it. Or... They do far too little in engaging with the message of Revelation. Uh, and, And so it's with these sort of thoughts swirling around that I want to introduce this study and begin a journey as a church that I think is going to profoundly bless us. We ignore Revelation to our great poverty. From the very beginning of the work, St. John pronounces blessing over those who read it, over those who hear it, over those who heed the, the words of this book. And I want to offer that save for the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the book of Revelation might be the most important book for American Christians in 2020. Not because it's necessarily the end of the world. Frankly, friends, I have no idea. And nobody else does either. But if I do receive that information, I'll be certain to try to sell a lot of books and you know try to just make sure that everybody knows that uh, we have been given the end time date No, I I think it's the most important book for us right now, not because it necessarily describes our moment in our day, but because of the following things. It paints a vivid picture of the unshakable kingdom of God in the midst of a cosmic battle between good and evil, as we've already described. We live in, to put it nicely, interesting times, And to put it much more clearly, we live in very uncertain times. And so Revelation paints a picture of the unshakable kingdom of Jesus in the face of all worldly events, all worldly rulers. Revelation focuses us 
on the incredible significance of the good news of Jesus in a way that doesn't compartmentalize like Ann Peterson was talking about, but, but gathers it into a whole of cosmic shalom, bringing all of this chaos into harmony and order. Revelation immerses us, and this is so important for us in our day and in our time, in the language and world of the scriptures. Look at this. Revelation has 404 verses. And at least within those 404 verses, there are at least 518 references to earlier scriptures, mostly from the Old Testament. John is so steeped in scriptural imagination, and he's trying to get us to see the world through his lens and with his language. Revelation assures us, especially in this moment where it feels like nothing changes, especially in this moment where it feels like injustice is just something that we have to grow accustomed to. Revelation assures us that there is goodness and justice in the world far beyond the hypocrisy and corruption of our own political realm. That Jesus truly does stand on the side of good and is truly opposed to all that is evil, all that is sinful, all that brings death. Revelation assures us that there is judgment and justice and even in that space that the goodness of God is revealed. Revelation brings us hope in the end and it focuses our eyes our attention, and our deepest imagination relentlessly upon Jesus for entrusting Him with our future and and receiving from Him in the present. Revelation is a profound and beautiful work. And I I pray that during these next several weeks, we're going to actually be in Revelation beginning now, leading up through the national election up all the way until Advent. So this series is going to carry us for quite a while, and I am so excited for the different ways that we will be able to engage this book and the way that we will see the good news of Jesus, His life, His death, His resurrection, a promise and guarantee for all the world. And so I'm, I'm so excited. This is one of my favorite books to study and so honored to be joining you on this journey. So today, what I want to do is just do some preliminary work by way of introduction as we wade into Revelation chapter 1, and we're only going to get through about six verses today. Now first, a couple of important matters. The author names himself as John. Church tradition equates this John with the John who wrote the gospel, the gospel of John, and the letters 1st through 3rd John. But that is unlikely for a host of reasons that we're not going to go into uh, this morning. Now, we will assume that this is a different John, John the seer, John the revelator, we'll sometimes call him, and we'll proceed from there. I think that this book was written during the reign of Domitian, uh, sometime between 81 AD and 96 AD in the late first century. And John locates himself on the island of Patmos and designates the recipients of this letter as seven churches in what is today uh, known as Asia. And John has been exiled because of his faithful witness to Jesus. And he receives this revelation. And this revelation is an invitation for him Uh, to declare to these churches what he has seen, what Jesus is doing in the world. And he writes to encourage them, to challenge them, and to strengthen them for the days that are ahead. 
And as John sends his letter, though he's exiled, I love this, that Jesus still breaks down walls. John is not, his purpose is not lost because he is imprisoned. His purpose actually is emboldened and tightened in this space. And John sends his revelation on a circuit that would have started with Ephesus, the most important city in the region at the time. It would have followed a geographic circuit that somebody following the Roman roads of the time would have followed. And this, uh, this person this would have gone and, and, and read the whole of Revelation aloud to these churches. Something that we don't do often in our world. Just sitting and listening to an entire work of the scriptures. And, and, and in doing so, John is announcing what Jesus is up to in the world. It's so beautiful and so powerful. Now, a couple of other major preliminary questions. Uh, the question of genre. Now, genre, as we read any part of the Bible, is such an important interpretive key when we are talking about understanding a book for the questions that it's actually trying to ask and answer. Now, for instance, you would not open a math textbook to try to find historical facts about Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King Jr. Of of course, you know better than that. But one of the difficulties that people have when they're reading the scriptures and often where people get off course immediately and just kind of uh, chalk it up to either misunderstanding or that it's all too complex for them to understand and so they give up. One of the things is that there are genres in the Bible that are foreign to to genres uh, and genres that we understand in our own world. And they often carry different expectations. Revelation is certainly no exception. Revelation is best described as a hybrid of three different genres. It's an epistle or a letter. It's a work of prophecy and and a work from a genre that was especially popular at the time called apocalyptic. Now, a letter is fairly self-explanatory, especially if you're familiar with the scriptures themselves. It aligns of much of what we are familiar with from the the writings of St. Paul or the other letters of John or Peter. Revelation is first directed to seven specific churches who live in a certain time and place. And this should give us pause when we impose anything that's going on in our present onto Revelation itself. Revelation was written to people for whom the message would have needed to mean something. And so this grounds us as we read Revelation. We have to understand what these churches were facing. We have to understand their circumstances in order to grasp what the mystery and and what Revelation might be saying. And this is actually the way we read the whole of the Bible. We try to understand what the original authors were saying in their original setting. And we are going to look more intently at this over the the coming weeks as we look at these specific instructions to these specific churches. Now, the number seven will carry significance uh, for how the words in the letter apply. There are seven churches. And we'll see how this number uh, carries repeated significance throughout the letter. Uh, but, but what Revelation is doing is it's using and heavily relying on both, as we talked about, scriptural language, but also symbolism. If I were to show you a picture of, of a donkey or an elephant and it were to be stylized in a certain way, like you see on the screen, that image would mean something to you. Now, the people of of this time, in the late first century, had images 
that, that evoked something from their culture or images that meant something to them that often is lost on us. And so we will talk about the symbolism and the way that we have to, to seek to step into their world in order to better understand our own. The work is self-described by John also as a, as a prophecy. Revelation 1.3, he describes, he says, this is a, a prophetic word, a word that sees into the throne room of God and declares the things that God is doing and saying in the world, in the, in the present, in the here and now. And again, we have some experience, if you have any knowledge of the Bible, if you've, you've spent some time with it, with the prophetic genre because of books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Now, we get off on the prophetic because we think it's all about telling the future. That's not what biblical prophecy is necessarily focused on. Look at what Walter Brueggemann says of the prophetic genre. In response to the thus saith the Lord, the task of prophetic ministry is to nurture, nourish, and evoke a consciousness and perception alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us. The prophet often sees things for how they truly are. Not necessarily this is what will happen in this sequence of events. No, the prophets in the biblical understanding are often gaining insight because of the word of the Lord into what God is actually doing in the world, his mission, his actions. And so we have to understand that Revelation is both an epistle it is both a work of prophecy and the last strand of this three-part strand is that Revelation is a work of, uh, called, uh, from a genre called apocalyptic. Now, the word that we translate Revelation is apocalypsis in the Greek, literally revealing. Apocalyptic in our own time has come to be uh, associated with end times, but the genre historically is much more concerned with revealing the cosmic significance of events in real time and space. Jean uh, employs several hallmarks of the genre, a vision, reliance upon symbols, as we talked about, numerology, otherworldly creatures, a battle between good and evil, etc. There's so many more. And the biblical book of Daniel, if we read that book, employs some of this genre throughout its storytelling. Now, this is an all too brief introduction but I hope that it sets the scene for us as we immerse ourselves in the book of Revelation over the coming months. And so for our time together today, we want to just kind of hone in on this introduction as we begin digging into the text in Revelation chapter 1. So turn with me, if you have a Bible, if you're using a second screen, turn over to Revelation chapter 1. Again, as we'll see, the Bible promises us that we will be blessed simply for reading this. And so we should read it. Revelation 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, to show his servants what must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ 
the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Revelation 1, verses 3 through 6, are really an incredible summary of the entire narrative of the scriptures. The number 7, as we've talked about before, is used for the first time in this book, and this number will carry incredible symbolic significance throughout Revelation. Uh, The number 7... In in John's understanding, symbolizes completeness and perfection. The seven spirits references the perfect, the complete, this all-encompassing spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. The book then opens with a Trinitarian formula, referencing Father, Him who was and is and is to come, Spirit, the seven spirits, and Son, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Grace and peace are John's greetings, and they are the abundant gifts poured out by the triune God. This is the greeting that heaven has to say to earth, grace and peace to you. The extravagance of God's cosmic shalom, the revelation of his unending love, meeting us anew. And the name listed for God, the Father, is the name that was given to Moses as he stood before the burning bush back in Exodus That I am, he who was and is and is to come. God is the one who is. He is the ground of all being. He is the one who causes everything to be. And the seven spirits go forth from his throne and just like at Pentecost have filled the earth with the knowledge of God like waters cover the ocean as Isaiah foresaw. And the focus here. As John begins, his letter is relentlessly upon Jesus. And we will dig further into this incredible vision that John sees of Jesus in the latter half of Revelation 1. And we'll get into that next week. But we can see what Revelation is trying to do as an introduction. It is inviting us to see the world in God's way, to focus our time and our attention and all of our energy upon Jesus. And John offers a threefold designation of Jesus, and we can see three angles of the light and three elements of the good news that John is proclaiming to, to those churches that he wrote to and to our church and the church universal here in the world today. First, Jesus is called by John, the faithful witness. And this, this helps us to see the story itself. The faithful witness calls to mind the story of the scriptures, the story of Jesus of Nazareth lived out in his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus is the faithful witness as the messenger who announces the nearness of the kingdom of God, who invites us to repent, to change our mind and our ways, and to follow his way. And he is the faithful witness, not just of what God is doing in the world, he is the faithful witness of what it means to be human. Jesus is the one who worships and loves the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his soul, and all his strength. And that is what it truly means to be made in the image of God. Jesus is the faithful witness to the faithfulness of God. But what John is reiterating here is the beautiful reality of the whole Bible. God is fully and thoroughly like Jesus. Throughout the history of humanity, we have wondered, what is God like? 
What does he look like or what does she look like? What do they care about? What are the things that we need to do to please them? And what the Bible is telling us is that Jesus has revealed this to us fully. In his life, in his death, in his resurrection, Jesus has manifested God in the full. John 1 says that his word, he is the word made flesh. Hebrews 1 says that he has revealed God the Father fully and finally through the sending of his Son. What is God like? God is thoroughly and fully like Jesus. And this only gets better and better because throughout Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, Jesus demonstrates that God is fully self-giving love, others-oriented love, even to the point of death on a cross. God will not stop pouring His life and His love out for us. Jesus is the faithful witness, the testimony of who God is. And he invites us to behold this incredible gift that is Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus crucified, Jesus resurrected. So the first designation given to Jesus is that of the faithful witness. He bears witness to the kingdom of God, yes, but more so, he bears witness to what God looks like, what God is willing to do to relentlessly pursue us. The second designation that John offers for Jesus, the firstborn of the dead. And just as we saw our story played out in the faithful witness of Jesus, now we see our hope. Our hope in Jesus, the firstborn from among the dead, the the inaugurator of a new humanity. The power of death is met with the love of God and love has conquered death once and for all in Jesus' resurrection. The end of the story for each one of us, promised and attested to in the middle of the story, Jesus' resurrection, the first fruits, as Paul will write, our down payment, our guarantee that we can entrust ourselves now and for all of eternity to God's goodness and His faithfulness. Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. And as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, death is the last enemy. That, that all things will be put under the feet of Jesus. And Jesus has risen in the middle of time. 2,000 years have elapsed since Jesus' resurrection. To invite us into this incredible story. To guarantee us of this incredible hope. He is the firstborn of the dead. Ensuring and securing our hope. From, from the moment that he got up out of that grave. Then and forevermore. We can entrust ourselves to this hope. We have hope because of what Jesus has done in time and in space. We have hope because the love of God is stronger than the power of the grave. The last designation that is used for Jesus. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, our lens, if you listen to the rhetoric that came from both of the political conventions, our cultural lens... For this kind of ruling, this kind of reigning, uh, these, these political conventions are trying to tell us that their uh, vision of humanity is the one that is ultimate and final. They're, if you listen to the words they were saying, they were talking about things like salvation, talking about things like hope. There was a profound Messiah complex and self-importance, talk of saving the world, that they were our only hope. But here... In Revelation chapter 1, Jesus' reign is placed in its proper context. 
As Christians, we don't try to fit our Christian faith into one political entity or the other. Rather, as Christians, we recognize that the reign of Jesus relativizes all other claims to power and authority. And it's so important for us, church, Ecclesia, for us to see the overlap here. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth, not in that he is pulling all the strings, not that he rubber stamps everything they do and their agendas. Uh, No, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. They all owe their allegiance and commissioning to him. Psalm 2 says it this way, Why do the nations conspire? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds asunder and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord has them in derision. Now, therefore, this is the warning given to the kings of the earth. And in our parlance, governors and presidents and those who would claim authority and jurisdiction Here's the warning. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Psalm 2, verse 10. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and with trembling. Kiss his feet, or he will be angry. And you will perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Happy are all those who take refuge in him. Colossians 1 says that in Jesus all things were created and all things are to him and for him and from him. This pronouncement in Revelation is given to a church and a group of churches, these seven churches that are struggling with oppression from the state at varying levels. It is a reminder that though Rome declare that it is unbreakable and irresistible, that Roman reign and rule is contingent upon the authorization from God. Now, imagine, imagine that you are a first century Christian. Roman Empire is all-encompassing with all of its military might, with its vast scope. Everywhere you look, there's just symbolism of Roman rule with its ornate systems of government and bureaucracy, with the civic cult, especially in the parts of the empire that John writes to here in Revelation. There was an impulse to not only venerate the emperor as somebody worthy of honor, but to worship him. And so in this space... This is the the lens through which a first century Christian, the, the, the original recipients of these words of John, is looking at the world. Rome would seem invincible. You'd have no doubt, if you were a first century Christian, you would have no doubt witnessed how the Romans violently suppressed any forms of dissent from their reign. This is in fact what crosses were for. To be a deterrent to any form of insurrection, a ghastly reminder in the flesh that the Roman state was all-powerful. Oftentimes the Romans would line a road leading into a city with crucifixions. Those who thought that they could rebel against the power of Rome were put on poles as signposts saying, Do not mess with Rome. This is how it ends. And so the, the Roman propaganda machine in this all-encompassing way, is trying to co-opt the imaginations of all of their inhabitants and to say, you owe all of your allegiance and every good thing in your life to, to the power and the might of Rome. 
And the churches that John was writing to, as we will see, as we get into the specific messages addressed to each one of them, lived in this tension, and sometimes under the threat of violent persecution. But from the outset, from the very beginning of his revelation, from the very beginning of the things that he sees as he looks and he hears from Jesus himself, John is focusing our eyes on, on Jesus, the, rule, the, the world's true sovereign, on the throne and the author and the perfecter of our faith who has run the race and, and has run the race as the faithful witness and sat down to the seat of his authority at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And any president, any candidate, any congresswoman or police chief who thinks that their authority is ultimate or unwavering is a blasphemer. This, for many in our culture and many in our time, is the great temptation and idolatry an ability, an inability, excuse me, to see how the reign of Jesus should inform our participation in the political structures of our day. Leslie Newbegin, in reflecting on the fact that humans are narrative creatures, we need stories to define us, predicted that once the lid was taken off, that once the, the, the gospel story or the Christian story had been removed as kind of the all-descriptive meta-narrative, at least at a societal level, that people would revert to political narratives because we need a story large enough to give our lives to. And if you view any discourse on Facebook or you watch the news, you see that there's this rhetoric this rhetoric that is, that is so filled with urgency, so filled with vitriol, it's because people have now ascribed ultimate narrative to the political story. And we see this. The Roman Empire thought that it was the pinnacle. They thought that they were the ultimate. They, they invoked the favor of the gods of Mammon, Aphrodite, and Mars to ensure that their reign would go on. Their idolatry, as it would turn out, would be their undoing. Now, many in the U.S. who claim the name of Jesus are falling into this same pattern and failing to make this distinction. Echoing Pilate's question as he faced Jesus and put him on trial, Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? And many who claim the name of Jesus, but are, uh, their allegiances seem tied more to political entities than to Jesus, the ruler of the kings of the earth, are answering that question with truth is power, truth is being in charge, truth is picking Supreme Court justices. The American church must recover this vision of Jesus on the throne. In Ecclesia, we must repent of the ways that we have tried to act as if he is not seated there or that his throne as ruler of the kings of the earth has nothing to do with the earth. Revelation, as we enter into this season, is an invitation to see the world rightly, to see that the cross of Jesus is not a failure, but the coronation of a king and a kingdom that reigns forever and to which every person, power, nation, and culture owes its allegiance. And John ends this brief section with a stunning benediction. He writes, To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. Revelation 1.6 And he made us to be a kingdom of, of priests serving his God and Father and to, be, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
this Jesus who was speaking to us, who offers the greetings of blessing, grace, and peace, who is the firstborn from the dead, who testifies to the deepest reality of God, who is the ruler of every single king on earth. He loves us. He loves you. The king of all the world, the one who holds the universe in his hands, who made every inch of the world, who designed every system, every theory, every beautiful sunset, everything is in his hands and he loves you. It's just an incredible statement. As John is reflecting on the magnitude of his cosmic rule and reign, he turns to each one of us and he says to the one who loves us. This picture is incredible for its harmonious contrasts, such stirring sovereignty, such heartfelt passion. What's more, he has demonstrated his love for us, not simply by his words, not by just telling us he loves us, but by his very blood. He has bought liberation in the language of the Exodus. He has saved us. And as if that were not enough, he has invited us into his reign to partner with him as vice regents to rule alongside him, a kingdom of priests serving God. A priest is simply somebody who tells the world what the deity that they serve looks like. And Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, has made us and called us to be a people who bear witness, who, who live as Jesus did. We're called, just as Jesus was the faithful witness, we are called to be his faithful witnesses, to live in earth as if, uh, as if the kingdom has come, which it has. We live as faithful witnesses to the king, kingdom of God, eyes focused on Jesus, imaginations fixed on his rule and reign, and the possibilities of justice and mercy that flow forth from his throne. And the only response, the only words that are adequate to life in this new world on our part are worship. Glory, honor, dominion, and blessing. These are the words that John offers, all in surrender. As we abandon our wills and our ways and our small lines of thinking in seeing the world, and we submit our lives to the big, vast, cosmic vision of the one who is ruler over everything, the one who just so happens to love us. Jesus is the good king who is sovereign, faithful, and with us. And Tim Keller says the only person brave enough to wake a king in the middle of the night for a cup of water is a child. And I think this initial vision that John sees is inviting us to see two things as I close here. First, to hear simply those words pronounced over us, to let them wash over us, that the reality of God's disposition towards each one of us, the reality of God's disposition towards you is the same as it always has been. The fundamental posture of God towards the world is this, it is blessing. Blessing is the first word spoken in Genesis and blessing is the first word of the new world. He loves you. Friends, I, I can't say it any more clearly than that. He has saved you. He has given everything that he has to demonstrate to each one of us that we are at home in his story, that we have hope because of what he has done. 
grace and peace to you to accept these words is, is to receive our identity as daughters and sons. Like, like Harry Potter, when Hagrid comes to him in the first book and says to him, Harry, you're a wizard. This whole new world is opened up to us. Harry did nothing to change his situation. He simply received the reality of who he is. And Hagrid called that out and that opened a whole new world for him. And second, just as Harry's receiving of those surprising words is an invitation to a whole new world of surprise and delight, to see the world rightly, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the ruler of the kings of the earth, is to be ushered into a whole new way of seeing the world. We are invited to be a people who respond in prayer, to be the child who goes to the king and says, this is what we need to be your faithful witnesses. We want our hearts to be shaped by your heart. We want our wills to be bent towards your will, to long for what you long for, echoing the words that Jesus himself taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yours is the kingdom. Your Yours is the power and the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. Later, Jesus in Revelation will say that he stands at the door and he knocks. And the question for us this morning is, will we receive the revelation of the exalted Lamb, the one who is enthroned above all the kings of the earth as the true and beautiful way of seeing the world? Our response, our opening the doors of our hearts is to receive our identity. To receive our identity as his daughters and sons. To receive our calling to live as his kingdom of priests. To worship, to pray, and to bless out of the deep well of that identity. Revelation is an invitation to see the world rightly. To focus our eyes on Jesus on, and to see everything through the lens of his story, his hope, and his rule and his reign. I pray that you will receive that invitation, that you will hear the words of blessing spoken over you. That he loves you. That he has saved you. All we have to do is open the door as he knocks and say, yes, Lord, that's for me. Peace to you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.